I would suspect that most of us in somewhere traveling have had a, what I call a lodging nightmare. Hopefully it's not in a relative's home, although that can happen too. But you know, one of those times when maybe you're traveling and you figured there'd be lots of hotel rooms along the interstate or in the town and you took that for granted and that was a huge mistake because there was something going on in that area and now you cannot find a place to stay. Or maybe you thought, well, we're going to save some money and we'll go on the cheap and then you realize you think those sheets were really used for about three or four of the previous nights. Um, I, I think for my wife and I, one night we were uh, trying to save some money at a convention, and so we got the cheapest hotel on the chart. You know, f they always give you these charts for the convention, so we got the cheapest one. And then it took us a while to figure out the noise we heard when we turned off the lights, and it was the cockroaches in the bathroom scurrying around. You know, those lodging nightmares. Well, you feel trapped, and what are you going to do? Well, it occurred to me that's what Mary and Joseph had, <laughs> a lodging nightmare. Now, we've read the Christmas story so much that we sort of say, oh, well, of course, they stayed in the inn, I mean, in the stable and, and all of that. But I don't think that's what they thought. They hadn't read the Christmas story, and they needed a place to stay in. Those of us who've been a part of having children, you first have to understand Mary is at the end of nine months of pregnancy. Now, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but from what I've seen of life, at the end of the ninth month of pregnancy, women are not always at their best. I'm just going to leave it there. And I, my suspicion is when Mary was ready to lay down, she wanted a bed now. And if Joseph was any kind of wise new husband, it was, i got to find a bed now. Because my wife needs a bed now. And they're newlyweds. I mean, they haven't been married. This isn't the third or fourth kid. This isn't a process that they know what's coming. It's new to them. No one is at their best in that moment. And then you have a lodging nightmare. And you can't find a place to stay. And Mary say, I need it now. And Joseph says, I'm trying, I'm trying. And he keeps knocking on doors. And he keeps looking anywhere he can in Bethlehem, trying to find a place they can stay. And that's why we capture them in Luke 2. I know it's familiar to you, but I want to read it again. It is the setting for what we want to talk about today in our symbol. For Christmas. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that was, took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town, to their ancestral home, to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to him to be married to him and was expecting a child. 
while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to their firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. A travel nightmare. A new baby and no place to lay that baby except a manger. Now if you read commentaries, if you listen to the scholars, there's lots of theories about that manger. Some picture of manger made of wood, some picture a manger made of stone. Some see it in a barn that strangely resembles Midwest farm barns. Some see it as a cave. Some think it may have actually been in the lower level of a home where they kept the animals. What we do know is this. It was basically something for animals, not humans. It wasn't designed for newborn babies. It was not ideal. I think that's part of why Luke notes it and says, surprise, he was laid in a manger. A place normally reserved for animals. I want to talk about that manger today. I want to use it as our fourth symbol. Throughout December, we've looked at the different symbols of Christmas, or some of them, and the meaning of them, and I think there is meaning in the manger. I think it was not an accident, and I'm going to try and show you that. I think, in fact, it was a symbol that God wanted to use as a message for us today. Part of the reason I say that is because I think God had a choice. Most often when we have what I'm jokingly calling a lodging nightmare, it's because we don't have a choice. We didn't make a reservation, or we picked the wrong hotel, or we didn't call ahead, and now we're trapped. But if we stand, understand much about God, it is that He is all-powerful. If that's really true, and He was moving stars months in advance, then He wasn't shocked that the inn was full. God didn't run out of options. He could have had, in one sense, any room he wanted. He's God. He wants your room. Guess what? Suddenly you're sick, and you need to go home, so that room is free. He can do that. He's God. Or he can say, I know Mary and Joseph are going to be here in nine months. I'm going to have a new innkeeper start a new inn to make sure there's enough rooms for him. He could have done any of that. But he didn't. He didn't. God was okay with a manger for Jesus. I think he was more than okay for a manger. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. I think God wanted Jesus in that manger. Because of what that manger says to us today and has said for 2,000 years. As people have heard the story of Jesus' birth, invariably part of that story has been Luke's detail that when that baby was new, Mary put him in a manger. So the question becomes, what, what does a manger say? If this symbol has a message, what is that message that God wanted us to hear? 
What words come to mind for you when you think manger and birth and laying a baby in it? Probably words like simple, humble, unpretentious. Words that would be true for any of us. But what if it's not just a baby is laid there, but what if you are the most powerful person in the country? Or you are the most important person in that area. Or you are the wealthiest person in that area. And you have a choice and you still say, I'll use the manger, thanks. Then suddenly that choice, that very act of using that manger for your baby becomes a bigger message. That you chose to do that. That choice carries a stronger message message for us and I think in a sense it was a hint of what was to come with Jesus we have the advantage of history and we know that as I say Jesus didn't fit the mold of what people expected he wasn't normal if we can use that term he was always surprising people by how he acted how he treated others what he didn't demand what he didn't bother doing and what he did do. And what I want you to notice in the manger that is that Jesus begins that kind of life from his very birth. Because Jesus is the most powerful baby ever born, of the wealthiest parent who ever lived, the most important parent who ever lived, God himself. And yet he chooses to say that manger will be just fine. That to me makes that manger a very powerful message. And it's a message of how Jesus lived his entire life. It's in alignment with that. And that's what I want you to see. I want to look at the message. No, I want us to look at Philippians 2 as the message paraphrases it. So I put it on the screen, if you're following with the electronic notes, it's in there, in the message. But I want to read from Philippians 2, 5 through 8, the way they've paraphrased it. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. And having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. The worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. What Paul wants us to see is that from the beginning, this was the plan for Jesus' life. Though he was God himself, though he was all-powerful, the most important person in history, he chose to come to earth to be a servant. And to live in that way, not focused on what was good for him. Not focused on his comfort, 
He came to live a life in what was good for us. Ultimately, of course, in what we've just celebrated with communion, dying on a cross because we needed him to die on the cross, not because he did. And he was willing to do that. You know, it's one thing to be humble if you're born humble. You don't really notice being poor if that's all you've ever known. But it's another thing if you have everything. And you willingly say, I will give up everything so that I can become poor and humble to help others. Then that humility, that servanthood, that, that poverty becomes much more powerful. And that's what Paul is trying to say. That's what Jesus was willing to do. And he did it from the very beginning. When he was born in a manger. And he was fine with that. But I don't think that manger only tells us something about Jesus and the life he would live. I think in some ways that manger also carries a challenge for us. And that's the other part of this symbol that I want you to capture today. Because that manger wasn't just about Jesus and his humility, his attitude. It was also a challenge Jesus gives us. Will you come down here with me, he says to us. In John 13, he says, I have set you an example. Do as I've done for you. Even to the point of a manger. What Jesus is saying is, I have come from the beginning to live the life of a humble servant, caring about others and not putting my comfort first. And I started from my birth living that way. But he also says, will you join me? In a sense, I think Jesus would say, will you join me in the manger? In Philippians 2, Paul wrote, after verse 5, about Jesus and his attitude. But the purpose he wrote those wonderful ver ver verses about Jesus is what he says in the first four verses of that same chapter. Will you turn back with me to Philippians 2? And I want to read the beginning of what Paul says there about how that attitude of Jesus, that humility of Jesus, is a lesson for us. In verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you're a Christian and encouraged by Christ's call to you, if you have any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit of God, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy as your spiritual father. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And how do we live? In verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Be like Him. And then that's when Paul went on to say, look what He did for us. 
But if you see there in verses 3 and 4, Paul says that's how we need to live. Like somebody who was willing to be born in a manger. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's not about me. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves what Jesus had to do to be willing to leave heaven. The Son of God said, you are more important than my comfort. Your welfare is more important than my getting to stay here in the joys of heaven. I will come to earth and I will start my life in a manger. And that's Jesus' call to us. To live in that same way, looking around us and valuing others. And what is best for them? How can I help them? Even if it costs us. Even if it involves sacrifice and servanthood. And a manger. It struck me that I'd like to think of Jesus' life as three symbols. The manger that we've just talked about. And the obvious one that we all think of, the cross. And if we could use those as bookends for Jesus' life, the manger on one end, how he enters this world, and the cross on the other end is how he leaves this world. And I want to add a third symbol. It won't surprise you. It's a basin and a towel. The tools he used to wash feet. And to me, that third symbol embodies the life of Jesus. But what I want you to see is all three of those symbols line up in a perfect line. They're the symbols of a servant who cared more about the welfare of others than himself. And he entered that way in a manger. He lived that way washing feet, healing the sick, touching lepers, loving the unlovable, forgiving the sinner. And he died that way as our sacrifice. And that's the gift God gave us on Christmas night when God himself entered our human history to live as a person, to live as a servant. And it began in a manger. And that servant says, will you join me? Will you join me in this manger and walk with me as I live a life of servanthood, caring more about others than I do myself? We are so blessed because he did. You know what? There's people in every one of our lives that he wants us to bless like Jesus blessed us. By being servants to them as that baby became a servant to us. That's the challenge of the manger. Let's pray. Father, thank you for caring so much about us. You asked Jesus to leave the comfort, the perfection of heaven and be born in a manger and live as a servant and die as a sacrifice for us. What a gift you gave us at Christmas. But Jesus' life is also a challenge to us, a call to us to be like him. And this final week of Christmas, I know you will place in every one of our lives people you would like us to serve like him. Somehow to put their welfare above ours. To give up our comfort or convenience so we can touch them and help them.
may we accept that challenge and in some way may people see that servant king living through us this week. I ask that in his son's name. Amen.